Chapter 1 Issei Japan and the United States face each other, but across the broadest ocean of them all. Once, such a body of water was almost like the space between us and the moon. Edwin O. Reischauer, The United States and Japan, 1950 After the Shoguns The Japan from which my grandparents came to the United States was post-feudal and eager to be part of the modern world. By the end of the 19th century, an economy and culture of farms and fishing villages was being supplanted by an economy based on manufacturing and commerce. Japan was in flux and trying to catch up with America. Japan wanted factories and trains. As a viable social force, the samurai had been in decline since the 17th century, even as the intrigues and epic clashes of the shoguns came to dominate the culture. An ethos of loyalty, obedience, and honorable conduct persisted, but samurai prestige and power were drawn into the service of great political and military alliances, and centralized authority was flowing to Edo, now Tokyo, and Osaka. By the early 18th century, the samurai had devolved into a class of idlers and bureaucrats, and by the mid-1700s they were being stylized and memorialized in the Kabuki Theater. The last of the shoguns stepped down in 1868, and the samurai themselves were formally disbanded a decade later. By the end of the 19th century, Japan had been paying attention to Europe, which is to say the West, for several centuries. Following an accidental landing in Nagasaki in 1542, Portuguese merchants and Jesuit missionaries, the leading edge of colonialism, had brought their religion and the prospect of trade to Kyushu. They brought tobacco and bread, and the Japanese adopted them. The Japanese word for bread is the same as the Portuguese, pan. About the time Shakespeare was writing King Lear, English and Dutch commercial agents displaced the Portuguese and Spanish, and Protestantism replaced Catholicism as the version of Christianity to be either embraced or resisted. But in 1614 Christianity was banned, and the missionaries expelled as subversive interlopers, which they were in effect if not by intention, and alien barbarians, and Japan officially re-isolated itself from foreign travel and trade. Even so, the tenacious Dutch held on, and when they re-established a major presence in Nagasaki in 1641, European ideas, learning, and trade goods entered Japan once more. Through Europeans, the Japanese became familiar with firearms and used them in clashes with each other. In July 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry sailed uninvited into Edo Bay to briefly but forcefully introduce Japan to the United States, and he returned the following February, pointing the cannons of his Kurofune, black ships, at archaically assembled ranks of Japanese soldiers with swords and spears. This opened up a dialogue on coal and whales, through which Perry insisted on offering Japan the opportunity to establish trade relations with America. For the next five decades, the United States would gesture at empire building in Asia, and this was the start. Perry's successful mission highlighted the obsolescence of the shoguns and accelerated the denouement of Tokugawa Japan. The Japan into which my grandparents were born, under the Meiji Restoration, 
1868-1912, embraced precepts that had informed samurai culture, including loyalty, obedience, and self-control. Meiji Japan continued to demonstrate the importance of group affiliations, traceable at least as far back as the 4th century AD, when the Yamato clan asserted its hegemony over other clans and consolidated power in Kyoto. It also declared its autonomy from Chinese hegemony and asserted its own identity. My grandparents' Japan was imbued with a Shinto spirituality of purity, filial piety, duty, loyalty, and obligation that linked ancestors to descendants and human existence to the natural world. Given all of this, individual achievement had meaning in the context of group affiliations and the greater good, whether a family, ken, native prefecture, school, team, company, or nation. Meiji culture was also layered and textured with the Buddhist precepts of stoicism, patience, self-denial, and devotion to learning. Learning in the search for spiritual enlightenment, learning reflected in scholarly occupations and artistic patronage. And learning was aggressively promoted by the creation of a Ministry of Education in 1871, and by Emperor Meiji's 1890 rescript on education. If Japan were to play a major role in the modern world, it would have to continue to learn and grow. Formal education was seen as fundamental to national identity and long-term success, and this decreed commitment to formal education would continue to find expression through future generations, even in America. Late in the 19th century, Japan was still socially and administratively hierarchical, but the tradesmen and merchants who had been marginalized and disdained under the samurai and shoguns had risen in status and significance along with the cities they animated, Edo, Osaka, and Kyoto, ambitious commercial as well as political and cultural entities, and numerous reinvigorated port cities such as Nagasaki and Yokohama. Four decades after Commodore Perry's visit, Japan was eager to take a major economic, political, and military role in the world. It had made an ambitious statement in the Sino-Japanese War and was on the verge of a successful war with Russia. Japan was focused on what it could learn from the West and particularly fascinated with the United States, 5,000 miles away. Meanwhile, the United States was doing its own empire building, not only in the Caribbean with Cuba and Santo Domingo, but across the Pacific with the Hawaiian Islands, Midway Islands, Wake Island, and the Philippines, among other acquisitions. American missionaries were among those killed during the Boxer Rebellion, and other Americans were trapped in the 55-day siege of Peking in 1900, which was eventually lifted by an international force that included U.S. Marines. Rough Rider Teddy Roosevelt was waiting, somewhat impatiently, in the wings. On the verge of the 20th century, the United States and Japan were positioning themselves for major roles, destined to enlarge their acquaintance on a recurring basis. Stumptown In the early days, Portland, Oregon was a settlement full of stumps. Much later it would be known for its bridges and gardens, but in 1900 there were only two bridges, and there was not enough city to celebrate with a festival of roses. You knew the place by where the cedars and firs had been. 
Cutting, digging, or pulling out the stumps was difficult and took time. So when the prime real estate along the Willamette River was first cleared, people often built and worked around them. Still, turn-of-the-century Portland had 90,426 people, and at 70 miles from the Pacific Ocean was already an established deep-water port, linked to the Columbia River by the Willamette, linked by road and rail to the wheat fields of the Willamette Valley. Oregon fortunes were to be made in agriculture, timber, shipping, fishing, canning, mining, and commerce, and Portland intended to be indispensable. By 1900, it had attracted foreign consuls from Europe and from Mexico and Peru, though none quite yet from Japan. In the preceding decade, the population had almost doubled. Stumptown had ambitions. There was a need for workers of every kind, from teamsters and butchers to dressmakers and clerks, and especially for cheap manual labor. Three decades after the end of slavery, Immigrant labor and slave wages were fundamental to the building of America. In 1865, while the Union Pacific Railroad was recruiting Irish workers to construct the Transcontinental Railroad, the Central Pacific was recruiting Chinese. And in Portland in the early 1890s, a decade after passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, Shintaro Takaki and S-Ban Company began recruiting and contracting Japanese labor whose sweat was less objectionable from a political and diplomatic perspective, and especially needed on railroad crews and in logging camps. Like the Chinese before them, the Japanese were lured by the promise of jobs and visions of prosperity, by the aura of America. Like the Irish before them, like the Italians, Bohemians, and Poles, these Japanese were lured to America by the agents of industries intent on procuring a cheap and docile workforce. Meanwhile, traveling salesmen from S-Ban, M. Furia, and other mercantile enterprises would make sure that both the earlier and the more recently arrived Orientals had food and clothing. In 1900, Minajiro Maramoto, my mother's father, was among the naive, ambitious, and uninformed newcomers, and pathetically untutored in American ways. He was the youngest of three sons from a village in Wakayamaken, prefecture, on the Pacific Ocean. He was probably recruited by Takaki, who focused on Okayama and Wakayama prefectures, and he eventually worked on a railroad crew, in a lumber camp, and on an eastern Oregon farm. Bunichi Nakadate, my father's father, the oldest of five surviving sons, was from Toyotomi, a farming village in the middle of Honshu, near Kofu and Mount Fuji a region then at the heart of Japanese sericulture, the silkworm industry. More importantly, he came to the United States in 1903 on the strength of a prior acquaintance with a Yamanashi kinsman, or Kenjin, Masajiro Furuya, who sold dry goods and recruited laborers, and promised him a job. Of course, my grandfathers were joined in their Oregon ambitions by many other recent immigrants, whose origins and identities were marked by their various old country affinities, their religious denominations, and the foreign language newspapers they started. These immigrants were also identified by the mutual aid organizations that declared them to be authentic, worthy, and determined to stick around. The C. Colombo Aid Society, Dodansk Frenning, the First Hebrew Benevolent Association, 
the German Ladies' Aid Society, the Scandinavian Society, and more. All of these appeared in the city directory for 1899 to 1900, alongside the Waverly Golf Club and the Young Men's Republican Club, among others. No mention yet of an organization for the Japanese, and alongside individuals whose listed occupation was scavenger. Minajiro Maromoto and Bunichi Nakadate were unknown to each other in Japan, and about as likely to meet as a Welshman and a Scot, short of booking passage to America and starting their new lives in Stumptown, a few blocks apart. But there was certainly a passing moment, sometime in the first decade of the century, in which one of Furuya's salesmen, perhaps even Bunichi Nakadate, made a sale, some rice, some tiny dried fish, or a notebook to write his diary in, to Minajiro Maramoto, contract laborer, one of 2,500 other Japanese in Oregon at the time. Godfather Among the earlier Japanese immigrants to arrive on the U.S. mainland, Masajiro Furuya left Japan for Seattle in 1890 at the age of 27. If the United States was to set the pace for the new century, he wanted to be part of it. By training, he was both a teacher and a soldier, by instinct and opportunity, a captain of commerce, and in this way, a pioneer. He was an ambitious visionary, and more important to my family than any Carnegie or Ford. He might have briefly misled others when he started out by apprenticing to a tailor, but he never underestimated himself, never misunderstood his own mission and agenda. Before long, he set up his own business, and in short order the Furuya Tailor Shop engendered a grocery store, a labor recruitment agency, and then an import-export house that eventually contained a branch of the Japanese Commercial Bank. Furuya's business model was simple. Recruit young, single men, wives and families created needs and problems, not profits, who, as traveling salesmen, would pursue a clientele of Japanese laborers to canneries, mining operations, lumber camps, and railroad construction and repair sites, and then promote into supervisory positions those who had proven themselves on the road. The model was also tight. He could control paychecks and monitor employee behavior by requiring that his salesmen room, and sometimes also board, in company-owned or rented houses, and entrust their savings to his bank. So Masajiro Furuya both served and exploited his countrymen's hopes and needs. He was a shrewd opportunist, who recognized that whatever their economic condition, the Asian immigrants would always value a powerful countryman, a safe place to deposit their money, and something familiar from home, soba, shoyu, and sandals, sake, daikon, and rice, tofu, mochi, and fish cakes, kimonos, reading material, artwork, and amusements. Furuya's Model T trucks struck out from the cities and always managed to find customers, oriental strangers in a strange land, who took on tedious and risk-laden tasks, who learned that they could not always trust a hakujin, Caucasian or white person, and who could tolerate only so much meat and potatoes cooking. With other branches in Kobe, Yokohama, and Yokosuka, the M. Furuya Company expanded from Seattle to Tacoma, Portland, and Vancouver, B.C., its commercial empire growing with the Pacific Northwest itself. Competing in Portland with Tekoku 
Espan, and others. Furia supplied first the Chinese, then the Japanese, with the comforting foods and sundries of a life they had left behind. His Oregon territory extended as far west as Weiser, Boise, and Shoshone in southwestern Idaho. And Masajiro Furia's power and status grew accordingly, within and beyond the Japanese American community. He became something of a godfather figure to his employees, as well as his adrift in America clientele. Old man Furia expected hard work and undivided loyalty. He imposed a dark and rigid dress code, Furuya suits they came to be called without affection, and insisted on conformity of deportment, that is, fit into the community behavior. He held a short meeting every morning to lay down the rules, offer inspirational words, and ensure promptness. His employees stood in a circle for announcements and instructions, and, one by one, read verses from scripture. These meetings may have originated in similar events mandated for every school in Japan under the Meiji Restoration. Furuya required his personnel to attend the local churches in order to strengthen community relations within the culture of their commercial lives, and, not incidentally, to reinforce their learning of English. Masajiro Furuya was an autocrat, a martinet, a no-nonsense boss, who mirrored in his own domain the legendary management control of Marshall Field and Henry Ford. Years before Calvin Coolidge is supposed to have coined the phrase, Furuya clearly believed that the business of America is business. Apparently, he had no male heirs, although any significant estate they might have inherited was lost due to some questionable investments and then the Great Depression, and the residue disappeared between 1942 and 1945. But that is not to say there were no beneficiaries of Furuya's Japanese-American enterprise. Shortly after the turn of the century, and in a mutually beneficial move based on their shared origins in Yamanashi-ken, Masajiro Furuya promised Bunichi Nakadate a better-than-average start in America, and thus became the godfather of us all. Furuya Man I once wondered why my father's father, the oldest of ten children, including five sons, left Toyotomimura, village, and Yamanashi-ken in the first place. After all, in the Japan of the late 19th century, Bunichi Nakadate was in the family catbird seat. His given name was a constant reminder of his position and status, since each is Japanese for one, or number one. He could have stayed in place and built a secure life based on inherited advantage, favored by gender and culture. So I once imagined his having to leave home under duress, having gotten himself into a jam that made it necessary to skip town. A legal hassle, an indiscretion, an insult or altercation of some kind, something risky or even disreputable, intending to return eventually. But the skipping town scenario is too melodramatic, and the forty years he stayed in the U.S., a lifetime after all, a bit too long for just waiting for the fog to lift. It seems, my Uncle Toru told me, that Grandpa Nakadate was driven by ambition and an adventuresome impulse. He was looking for something different, seeking new pastures, by leaving the agrarian 19th century behind. In this sense, he was typical of many turn-of-the-century immigrants, although he had a bit more education than most, including some coursework at a business school. 
Three of his younger brothers also left home eventually, for Kofu in Tokyo. My grandfather's leap of faith into an American business venture may well have encouraged those moves too. And family obligation was not the least of it. Both my uncle and my father reported that Bunichi Nakadate decided he could best discharge his filial responsibilities by making money in America and sending it home. As the oldest son of a large family, he had certain privileges and prerogatives, but also the near-term obligation to improve family fortunes and the eventual responsibility of caring for his parents. His ambitions then were also undeniably economic, and accordingly he made sure that his new pastures included a guaranteed job, as it turned out, driving a Model T panel truck and selling Furuya goods on the Oregon circuit. It was a modest place to start, but a good way to come to understand America and modern business. And in making this hire, as in other matters, old man Furuya was an accurate judge of character and potential. Bunichi Nakadate was ambitious and strong-willed. He could tolerate risk, and he was willing to work his way into more responsibility and less travel. What he hadn't learned in business school in Japan about how to complete a transaction without getting sold a bill of goods, how to make money, and how to put it back to work, he learned in America from a master. And what soon developed into a white-collar job as clerk-cum-business manager of Furuya Company's Portland store at 5153 North 4th Street gave him some job security and a reliable income. Like many immigrants from both Europe and Asia, my grandfather arrived in the U.S. thinking of himself as a sojourner and ending up an all-but-permanent resident. That he eventually died in Yamanashi owed as much to politics and fate as to planning. When I met him as a boy, my grandfather was a 69-year-old steel rod of galvanized opinions who had seen it all and backed away from nothing. In the early years, his remittances from the United States helped capitalize what I only knew of as an electric company, whose fortunes rose with the expanding Japanese economy and with his brother's skill at negotiating the elaborate network of relationships that characterized Japanese commercial enterprise. By the time second son Kyoshke fell victim to some contaminated raw oysters, he and brother Yoshizo had guided the family business well enough to make it a major regional contractor, and Nakadate Denki, electric, even found ways to inch its way forward during the Depression. When my father was still a boy, he, too, began to work part-time for M. Furuya Company, initiated into the workforce as a stock boy. At 14, he was sent to the flagship store for the summer in order to avoid accusations of favoritism while fetching kegs of soy sauce and hauling huge sacks of rice upstairs. When he asked if he could try driving one of the delivery trucks, he was reminded that he was just the right size to crawl underneath the engine and reach up to change the oil. In Seattle, he also overheard irreverent employees refer in private to Masajiro Furuya as Big Boy, and he never forgot the tense morning employee meetings or those occasions when the voice of God from the office upstairs, Nakadate, summoned him for a lecture on his shortcomings. In his 90s, Dad had hanging above his bedroom door a carefully preserved multicolored cloth banner that celebrated the far-flung holdings of M. Furuya Company represented as a tree with several sturdy branches. 
Esban was pretty good, my father told me decades later, but Furuya was better. Loyal to the end, and like his father before him, he understood both the entrepreneurial achievement of Masajiro Furuya and the relevance of M. Furuya Company to our family's American fortunes. Central Pacific Huntington sleeps in a house six feet long. Huntington dreams of railroads he built and owned. Huntington dreams of ten thousand men saying, Yes, sir. Carl Sandburg, Southern Pacific Collis P. Huntington, 1821-1900, may have ended up in a six-foot box, but he led a privileged life. He was a financier and promoter, and some called him a robber baron. In 1890, he was president of the Southern Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads. Minajiro Maromoto, my mother's father, came to the United States at the age of 19 from the coastal village of Ukui, near Minato, in Wakayama-ken. He was sensitive, earnest, even-tempered, willing to please. He was apparently not desperate, but as the youngest of three sons he was not in line to inherit property. And in a Japan that was converting from a farming to an industrial economy, he was part of a nationwide labor surplus. He was certainly attracted to Oregon by word-of-mouth tales of American success, drawn from letters sent back to Japan by a small group of Wakayama immigrants, who were among the first Japanese to establish themselves in Portland. He was attracted by descriptions of western Oregon's mountain greenness and rocky coastline, after all on the same Pacific Ocean. But he was naive to the motives of the labor recruiter and his encouraging hype. As it turned out, Minajiro Maromoto was one of millions who, while getting a toehold in America, helped make other people rich, and said yes sir many times over. His life in America was evidence that, for decades after the Civil War, the United States remained addicted to the cheapest possible labor for its least enviable work. With the end of Reconstruction in 1877, the South found its solution in sharecropping and Jim Crow laws, poll taxes and literacy requirements, harassment and lynching. And elsewhere in the country, during the decades of headlong immigration from Europe and rapid expansion toward the West, the country's economic ambitions were sustained by a system of contract labor. Foreign contract labor. Asians were welcome to join the party as long as they knew their place and stayed in it. Minajiro Maromoto arrived in Seattle on the Tose Maru on February 2, 1900, a contract laborer, but listed on the manifest as a farmer, since farming was more generally respected as an occupation. And until 1906, Minajiro Maromoto worked as a contract laborer, repairing and replacing rails for first the Union Pacific and then the Southern Pacific, helping to build the early infrastructure of the Pacific Northwest. He was aware of following in the footsteps of Chinese, who had been recruited earlier by the Central Pacific and who, once the railroad was completed, were declared to be invaders and blamed for high unemployment. He was aware that further immigration from China had been barred by the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, since that had made him, in turn, a desirable commodity. And he was happy to overlook the possibility that the United States 
might eventually decide the Japanese were a yellow peril in their own right. He might have caught the irony that Japanese countrymen such as Espan were among those making a fortune at his expense. Labor recruiters never said how much of a man's wages might be withheld to pay for their job-finding services, or for insurance, or translation fees, or other items hidden in contract language no immigrant could understand. Nor did anyone explain that American employers would have him do jobs that Americans wouldn't take, under living conditions they wouldn't abide, for wages they deemed inadequate. Grandpa later maintained that what he actually took home was not much more than five cents an hour. Of course, such low wages all but guaranteed that he would be unable to accumulate wealth, and the exclusion of Asian workers from trade and labor unions made it unlikely that this would ever change. After a while, it became clear to him that his life might improve incrementally from year to year, but his story would be one of survival, not transformation. And, short of financial success, Minajiro Maromoto had little incentive to return to Japan. He was one of the tens of thousands who built America from the ground up. He was one of the tens of thousands who have been misplaced by the history books, lost in the rounded-off statistics of emigration, in the incomplete and sketchy records of harassment incidents and racist assaults and killings, in spotty and inconsistent data on accident, disease, and death. Even when there was a chance to enter these workers into the record, they were often ignored, dismissed, or simply ordered to step aside, undocumented. Chinese section hands, field workers, miners, cooks, and houseboys, Japanese railroad crewmen, cannery workers, and loggers, Irish laborers and domestics, Jewish textile workers, Mexican field hands, Lithuanian meatpackers. This is why, in the famous celebratory photograph taken at Promontory, Utah, in May 1869, to document the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, we see no Asian faces, though we know that there would have been no railroad without Chinese labor. They are present in their absence, missing persons standing somewhere outside the frame. Leland Stanford is there, of course, to tap ceremoniously on the golden spike. He is reported to have needed help, the actual tools of railroad building being unfamiliar to his hands. After he became governor of California, and before he and his wife founded the university that one day would be my alma mater, he succeeded Collis Huntington as a president of the Central Pacific. Montana Auntie Tana, who married my Uncle George Maramoto in 1942, was born Montana Suyama in 1919, in Great Falls, and named for the state in which her family's fortunes and misfortunes were to play out in the early decades of the century. By the usual measures, the misfortunes prevailed. For the Suyamas, as for many Asian immigrants, Montana offered hard labor under a hard blue sky. Like my Maramoto grandfather, Ichiro Suyama was at the mercy of the employer who held his contract, so he was in no position to enjoy what poet Richard Hugo later called the last best place. He worked for the railroad, and the Suyamas were far from the consolations and homeland comforts provided by the commercial lifeline of an M. Furuya, or S-Ban. He had actually tried Europe first, but didn't like it much, so refocused his ambitions on North America, Ichiro Suyama took a look at Alaska, just to see what it was all about, as Tana recalled him saying, but didn't stay. 
Traveling south, he saw the detritus of failed ambitions strewn alongside the Alaskan roads, furniture and personal effects abandoned by the desperate and failing. In the United States, his first taste of success was owning a railroad extra gang made up of other immigrant Japanese, which meant that Tsuyama was contracted to assemble, train, and supervise a maintenance crew that would work its way across the northern tier of states, scratched by sagebrush, sedge, and switchgrass, constantly skirting outcroppings and negotiating soapweed gullies. Their long days of repairing track only kept them from starving to death and falling into statistical oblivion. The bluebells and sunflowers were all but irrelevant to their attention. At some point, Ichiro also began to be called Harry. But once they got the lay of the land, Harry, Suyama's crew, like others up and down the line, began to run off in search of less dangerous and more promising ways to survive America. This was one of the reasons, Auntie Tana reported decades later, that oriental restaurants sprang up in towns all across Montana and North Dakota. To reconstruct his extra gang, Harry then added immigrant Filipinos, whose presence led to inter-ethnic frictions and periodic knife fights. Frustrated and disenchanted, Harry, too, abandoned railroad work, bought some dairy cattle, and started a farm at Havre that eventually grew to 30 milk cows and a lot of labor. Tana's father had come from a family that owned a large sanitarium in Japan. Her mother, Tammy, was the daughter of a physician in the Japanese emperor's compound in Tokyo, so she had had a comfortable start in life. But in Montana, her fear of being switched and kicked made milking a misery, even with the help of five children, Mary, George, Tana, Frank, and Betty, who tried to protect her from tails and hooves. Tammy Suyama's anxiety prevailed until Harry gave up dairying for truck farming. 25 acres of blue-ribbon carrots, cabbage, rutabagas, and tomatoes in only a four-month growing season. People in Havre missed the Suyama milk, but Tana's mother didn't miss the cows. She missed Japan, and as Tana put it, always wanted to go home. Harry, meanwhile, continued to cuss out Teddy Roosevelt. As president, Roosevelt had promised Harry and other Spanish-American war veterans that they would become American citizens, but then reneged. And that betrayal, coupled with alien land laws, meant that Harry could never own the property on which he was investing sweat and years. So much for the American dream. When their mother died of a stroke, Tana was 18, Mary was 21, George 19, Frank 16, and Betty 13. Their father's death of stomach cancer 11 months later left the children dependent only on each other, and their collective resources. Two weeks later, a man representing the property owner showed up, announced that they didn't live there anymore, and started tearing down the house. They tried to save what furniture, silverware, and dishes they could carry, and they began to scatter. Tana became a cook and housekeeper in Seattle, and Betty worked as a maid while attending high school. George would soon try to look out for his family's future in America, by leaving Montana for the army, Mary and Frank would find their way to Chicago. Immigrant life was hard all around, but it is worth remembering that in a time before farm machinery and home appliances mitigated the difficulties of making a home and raising a family, immigrant life was particularly hard on women. She played with the princesses in Japan, Tana later said of her mother, but she came to a hard, hard life in Montana.
For years, no one thought to explain the source of Auntie Tana's name, as Japanese-sounding as it was, but I eventually learned that the family story behind it was so quintessentially Japanese-American in its tenacity, frustrations, and faith as to be both a paradigm and a summary. Aboard the Amtrak Cascade, Portland to Seattle, via Vancouver, Kelso Longview, Centralia, Olympia Lacey, Tacoma. March 1999. Tie, spike, and rail you laid this track, Grandpa, in the immigrant obscurity of a nickel-an-hour Japanese extra gang, a young man living out recruiters' lies in endless railroad labor. Now it's mile a minute on a train loaded down with urban khaki tourists and cell phone commuters, our right-of-way marked by cable spools, graffiti scrawls, treadless tires, sawmill scrap, cordwood-laden gravel cars, filmy plastic snagged on bushes, abandoned shopping carts. Track repairmen in shiny hard hats drive bright yellow machines and wave. Beyond in shadows I see the not-yet-great northwest you found, rhododendron, cedar, blackberry, fern, and moss, muddy footing, bigotry, stoop labor, and a Wakayama village boy laying rail back when horsepower really meant horses and manpower meant exhaustion. Rousted at dawn into a dark mist, the drab seepage of Oregon winter, you ate strange food and asked tired muscles to recall their pain, to work more than one honest shift for every college class I would sit through, under palms and Spanish tile, and for the half-dozen I missed in those ignorant years of learning, when the California morning came too soon. Mongolians and Mongrels Civics Lesson, Part 1 Many of the problems faced by immigrants to the United States are not inherent, but created. Many of the promises made to immigrants were never meant to be kept. And in the American West, the cultural prejudices and political forces that blame Chinese immigrants for everything from unemployment and low wages to racial mongrelization gave rise to a network of legal restrictions and social behavior that then made it difficult for the Japanese to establish themselves let alone flourish, or fully participate in America as citizens of the United States with voices and votes. Often equated with the Chinese as Mongolians and cheap coolie labor that had outstayed its exploitable potential, the Japanese were deemed unassimilable and demonized as part of the yellow peril. U.S. immigration and naturalization policy were manipulated for social and economic reasons and for the benefit of those who had already arrived. The prejudicial attitudes were sustained by labor leaders, journalists, and politicians, and were to follow Japanese Americans well into the 20th century. California was often where the rhetoric and legislation were first tried out before spreading throughout the West, and from there to Washington, D.C. It's an interesting civics lesson, my father might have said. You could look it up. 1790 Federal law limits citizenship to free white persons. 1852. California imposes a foreign miners' tax. 1859. Chinese are excluded from public schools in San Francisco. 1862. Congress authorizes the naturalization of aliens who have been honorably discharged for military service. Federal law restricts naturalized citizenship to free whites and people of African descent. 1875. 
Congress stipulates that naturalization law applies only to free white persons and to aliens of African nativity and to persons of African descent. The Page Act, aimed at contract laborers and immoral Chinese women, prohibits entry into the U.S. of undesirable immigrants, but specifically people from Asia. 1880. California Civil Code prohibits marriage between whites and Negroes, mulattoes, or Mongolians. 1882. The Chinese Exclusion Act is passed, legitimizing race and nationality as criteria for immigration. 1888. The Scott Act renders void the reentry certificates of Chinese workers. 1892. Chinese exclusion is extended under the Geary Act. With special resident identification papers now required, the Barbary Plague leads to a quarantine of Chinese in San Francisco. 1904, Chinese exclusion is extended indefinitely. 1905, the Asiatic Exclusion League is organized in San Francisco. The San Francisco Chronicle begins 18 months of anti-Japanese articles. 1906. The California Legislature urges a limit on Japanese immigration. The San Francisco School Board segregates 93 Japanese children, of whom 25 are American-born citizens. 1907, Theodore Roosevelt's Gentlemen's Agreement leads to restrictions on Japanese immigration. 1908, the Asiatic Exclusion League of San Francisco includes 231 organizations. In Washington State, Buntaro Kumagai, an Army veteran, is ruled ineligible for naturalization, based on the 1875 law. 1909, anti-Japanese legislation is introduced in the California Legislature. 1911, the Japanese Association of Oregon, Nihonjinkai, is founded. 1913, California passes an alien land law. Prohibiting aliens ineligible to citizenship from owning land or other property, to be followed soon by similar laws in Arizona, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Minnesota, and other states. The Hearst newspapers publish a series of anti-Japanese articles. 1917, the U.S. designates a barred zone from which immigration is restricted. An alien land bill is introduced in the Oregon legislature. 1919, a second alien land bill is introduced in the Oregon Legislature. 1920, California's alien land law is revised to prohibit leasing to aliens and to prohibit aliens ineligible for citizenship from serving as guardians of property for their minor citizen children. 1921, with the Emergency Quota Act, the federal government establishes a 3% quota system for immigration. Based on country of origin and the 1910 census, a third alien property bill is introduced in the Oregon Legislature. 1922, in Takao Ozawa versus United States, the Supreme Court determines that naturalized citizenship is open only to free white persons and people of African descent. Japanese are ineligible. The Cable Act is passed, dictating loss of citizenship by any female citizen who marries. An alien ineligible to citizenship. Oregon enacts its alien land law. This sad timeline offers several instructive insights. One, 
American responses to a particular immigrant group are often tied to attitudes established in response to immigrant groups that preceded them. 2. Immigration politics grow out of local and regional controversy and are often tied to concerns over property. 3. Historically, discriminatory federal and state statutes and local regulations have been piggybacked and overlapped so as to obscure their true targets and their true intentions. And 4. The statistical minority status of mid and late 20th century Asian Americans. Was a direct result of prejudicial legislation based on race, ethnicity, and country of origin enacted decades earlier. If Bunichi Nakadate had known in advance that U.S. law would keep him from becoming a citizen and that Oregon law would eventually prohibit him from owning or leasing land, he would have recognized the insult but might not have been dissuaded from coming. His intention was to see what America was all about. And to fulfill his obligation to his family by succeeding in business there. But in 1940, when he took his late wife's ashes to Japan, he certainly saw the irony of having achieved a version of the American dream in an America that had never let him buy a house to live in, never let him vote. If Menejiro Maromoto had had the same information, never mind not being able to anticipate his incarceration at Minidoka. He might have decided to take his chances with the pecking order in Japan rather than live as a guest worker for life. By 1942, could it have come to him as a total surprise when his family was evicted from the Oregonian Hotel, evacuated from Oregon itself, and incarcerated behind barbed wire in Idaho? And with what long standing pain did he ponder the disingenuous assertion that such an un American phenomenon as Minidoka? Could only have been the spontaneous result of wartime hysteria on the part of the American people, their president, and other elected leaders, and their courts. And once the United States and Japan were engaged in war, did my grandfathers recall their earlier, better days in Portland, when they could still imagine the future, and when both of them were duly registered for the World War I draft, in case they were needed to serve their country? Nihonmachi. Japantown. In San Francisco, it evolved around Post and Geary, south of Lafayette Park. In Los Angeles, it spread out from East 3rd Street and South San Pedro. In Seattle, it was several blocks east of 2nd Avenue and between South King Street and Washington. In Portland, it was north of Burnside, south of Union Station, and west of the Willamette River, at the start of what became known as the Alphabet District. Like many other immigrants on both coasts, the majority of the Portland Japanese first settled near where they arrived by ship or train, as if they had used every last bit of stamina, patience, and money just to make it that far. And while many white Portlanders did not particularly care where in the expanding city the Asian population lived, many others assumed that the Chinese and Japanese would not mind sharing the same neighborhood. The Alphabet District was first subdivided by Captain John Hurd Cooch, but only labeled alphabetically in 1866. Later, in the great renaming of 1891, the cobblestone streets were given names from earlier Oregon history that later immigrants came to know on an intimate basis. From Ankeny, Burnside, Cooch, Davis, and Everett through Flanders, Gleason, Hoyt, Ingram, and on all the way to Upshur, Vaughan, 
and Wilson. The names of the Alphabet District memorialized the Northern European Americans who had preceded the immigrants from Asia. Some of the names, Cooch, Gleason, were tricky to pronounce, and some of the names contained the letter L, difficult for a Japanese to say, as was the case, of course, with Portland and Willamette. But all of it was consistent with the American fervor for city planning that spread from Boston to San Francisco as the country left the 19th century behind. From the park blocks to named districts to the unifying grid itself, Portland would be a coherent municipality of ordered spaces in which everything would be appropriately sited. Early Portland was reflexively European, and its downtown architecture was at once imitative, trendy, and eclectic. The buildings in which most of the Japanese immigrants lived and worked, so far from the thatched roof Minka and shoji screens of their native land, were Richardsonian, Romanesque, and Renaissance Revival, with Neo-Gothic and Italianate features in their ironwork and windows. Many of the Chinese had moved north from California once railroad work got harder to find, and they became the focus of harassment and violence when they tried to enter other forms of employment. Of course, for a cost-cutting employer, one Asian was as good as another, so Chinese workers were simply replaced by the not-yet-excluded Japanese, many of whom entered the U.S. through the ports of San Francisco and Seattle. When the Japanese drifted into Portland, they found themselves starting out in the Alphabet District, and learning to get along with, among others, the already resident Chinese, even though many Japanese believed from the outset that they were a cut above their neighbors. Recalling his Nihonmachi boyhood, my Uncle George claimed that the Chinese children envied the somewhat nicer clothing of their Japanese peers, and that, with reference to the outcome of the recent Sino-Japanese War, the Nisei boys would taunt, Nippon Kata, Shina Makatame, Japan won, China lost, while the two groups walked to the same public schools on opposite sides of Davis Street. The adults got along when they had to. It was a dance of Asian-American pragmatism and empathy that would last until 1942. Masajiro Furuya established his Portland store in Nihonmachi in 1897, and a few years later my Nakadate grandfather began to work there once he had proven his worth as a salesman and learned the Furuya way in Seattle. By 1900, when my Marumoto grandfather arrived in the U.S., there were six Portland businesses that sold Chinese and Japanese goods. They served a population of residents and transients that included not only Chinese and Japanese, but an occasional Italian, Greek, or African-American, and anchored a culturally diverse community of laundries, barbershops, dentists, pool halls and gambling parlors, midwiferies, bathhouses, boarding houses, tailors, restaurants, retail enterprises, prostitutes, and the Japanese Methodist Episcopal Mission Church. In 1903, a Buddhist temple was founded. Most of these businesses and all of the housing was stacked and layered in two- and three-storied, steep-stairway, narrow-hallway buildings, in the Warren-like spaces typical of immigrant housing across America. Restricted from becoming citizens and participating in political life, the immigrant Japanese, they called themselves Ise, or first generation, nurtured business connections and created networks of social, service, and ancestral organizations that affirmed prefectural kinship and cultural roots. Soon after, 
They created language schools so the next generation, the Nisei, would understand Japanese language and culture. The rest of Portland, the rest of America, lay beyond, but for everyday necessities there was no need to leave the neighborhood or to speak English. Meanwhile, the immigrants were quite aware that inappropriate conduct would betray the Japanese government's assurances to the United States and reflect badly on their homeland, and that bad behavior might jeopardize their resident alien status. At the end of the 20th century, my father, then well into his 80s, would get his hair cut on the third Wednesday of every month at Ben's Barber Shop on West Burnside Street. Technically, it wasn't Ben Soejima's place anymore, but now belonged to Clifford, an African American who took Wednesdays off and let Ben cut hair so he could stay busy in retirement and keep up his connections. Around them, extensive renovation was taking place, a new face being put on the old neighborhood. But in their eyes, West Burnside was still the essence of Nihonmachi, where their Japanese American lives began. Gentlemen's Agreement Why did the President's Pants Fall Down? Ru Sabeltu, Old Japanese American Joke Neither Minajiro Marumoto nor Bunichi Nakadate was interested in marrying outside of Japanese culture, so they were probably not concerned with Oregon's 1867 anti miscegenation statute, which made it unlawful for a white person to marry any Negro, Chinese, or any person having one quarter or more Negro, Chinese, or Kanaka, Hawaiian, blood, or any person having more than one half Indian blood. But Japanese immigration, shaped as it was by the interests of labor contractors and various employers, had created a bachelor society, much like that of the early cohorts of Chinese. The early Japanese community was overwhelmingly composed of single males, 96% according to the 1900 U.S. Census, who now had to wonder what a Japanese man looking at the prospect of long term residence in the U.S. might hope to do with the rest of his life. One answer lay in the so called Gentlemen's Agreement of 1907 to 1908, a series of diplomatic notes in which educational issues, immigration politics, and U.S. foreign policy were interwoven. This on the fly negotiation exemplifies the truism that the lives of America's immigrant minorities. Are directly affected, sometimes in unanticipated or irrational ways, by shifts in global affairs and diplomatic relations between their country of origin and the United States. It was also a reminder that in both Japan and the United States, the lives of women were legislated by male decision makers with their own interests in mind. In this instance, the gentlemen involved were Theodore Roosevelt and Elihu Root, his Secretary of State. Various Japanese diplomats and the San Francisco School Board, which in October 1906 had ordered 93 Japanese pupils to attend segregated schools with their Chinese counterparts. Racist anti immigration lobbies and politicians, intent on marginalizing Asian immigrants if they could not get them expelled outright, had brought about the policy. But given that Japanese immigrants had been benefiting since 1882 from agitation and legislation against Chinese immigration, And given that the Japanese government considered the Chinese to be culturally and politically inferior, the imposition of this particular racist school policy to solve a California problem created an international flap. The Japanese government, 
proud of its recent victory in the Russo-Japanese War and its ongoing role in creating a Japanese empire, wanted its immigrants to America treated with equity and respect, and allowed to pursue their education. The Roosevelt administration needed to placate the California lobby, nurture goodwill and productive relations with Japan, and at the same time, act pragmatically. The result of several months of wrangling by these various groups of men was that the school segregation policy was rescinded. Established resident aliens would henceforth be allowed to return to the U.S. after visiting Japan, the Japanese government would cease issuing passports to mere laborers, and the U.S. government would honor Japanese passports issued to parents, wives, and children of laborers already resident in the country. All of this amounted to only a temporary fix for Roosevelt and the United States, if only because the anti-Asiatic lobby was not finished with its work, and the Empire of Japan would continue to be sensitive concerning its image in the world. More to the point of my family history was this. After the gentleman's agreement, the Japanese immigrant male-to-female ratio shifted to 7 to 1 by 1910, and the 1920 census showed it to be slightly less than 2 to 1. Two of the female immigrants from this period were my grandmothers. One of them was a conventional picture bride, and one, apparently, was not. Picture Brides After the gentleman's agreement, Minajiro Maramoto and Bonichi Nakadate wasted no time, employing both tradition and innovation in their eagerness to get married and to get their wives to the United States. Tradition came into play in the form of arranged marriages, agreed to between two families whose offspring were separated by 3,000 miles of ocean, but who were deemed compatible and whose marriage was considered timely. This was the case with the Maramotos. Innovation came into play in the use of photography, which provided a means for the couple to make each other's acquaintance through the exchange of pictures, never mind that some men sent their future brides photos that were a decade or more out of date. A second American ceremony might also be performed, once the wife reached American soil, but for practical purposes, courtship was a long-distance affair, and proxy participation in Japanese marriage rights was enough to make matters legal. Besides, cultural conviction said that the extension of a man's family line was of paramount concern, and that love, or something like it, would follow marriage, not precede it. The process was efficient and workable, if not infallible. As earlier, Menejiro Maromoto identified himself in the paperwork as a farmer, since farmers, and their families, sat a notch or two higher on the immigration scale than laborers, who were not generally to be admitted to the U.S. under the agreement. After a passage of sixteen days, and after having been medically examined and passed, on February 28, 1913, Hatsune Imoto Maromoto was admitted to the United States at Seattle, under her married name, on March 1st, the date that has also always been given for her marriage. She had been born in the village of Miwasaki, in Wakayama-ken, between two brothers, and was almost twenty-three when she departed from the port of Yokohama. She was a typical picture bride, though it might be good to recognize that with her sixth-grade education and youthful hope of making her life matter in an unknown place, she was as much a pioneer as any woman leaving St. Louis for the Oregon country a half-century earlier. I see her walking down the gangplank of the SS Yokohama Maru toward my grandfather, 
a small, nondescript Japanese woman, only a shade over five feet tall, even wearing geta, dressed in her best kimono, and otherwise as presentable as possible after a decidedly unglamorous passage. I see her with her tightly tied bundles of worldly goods, so meager as to make a twenty-first-century traveler blush. I see her approaching a husband ten years older than she, a man whose thirteen years in America had proven anything but lucky, who, after railroad work and menial service jobs, not to mention a futile pass at farming, had yet to find an occupation open to him that would provide even a modicum of security, let alone success. She is, of course, oblivious to these important details of her reality. I see her determined smile, hiding fears and doubts, as she enters her uncertain American future. Many years later, she tried to teach me how to make sushi, but I was too blinded by my hurry-up, baseball-obsessed youth to recognize the gift she was offering, the colors and textures and fragrances of a heritage, the deft beauty of her wrinkled hands. On that same visit to Portland, I, who had not thought once about what it meant that I had been born in the United States, to citizens of the United States, or that I had grown up speaking and reading English, helped her study for her citizenship examination in American history and government. One nation, indivisible, she recited, in an Ise English that embarrassed me then, with liberty and justice for all. In ignorance of what it really meant to her after four decades of being an alien other, I helped my grandmother finally become naturalized. She and I, together with Grandpa, memorized the succession of presidents from Washington to Eisenhower, with the two Roosevelts properly inserted in between. Morigi Ashizawa was the fourth child and younger daughter of a regional official in Yamanashiken. She was born on January 1, 1892, into a prosperous family of officeholders and professionals, and had been brought up in an architectural marvel of a house. Its woodwork was elegant, its tatami-matted rooms ample, and its landscaping tasteful and tended, making the Ashizawa place a public statement. In photographs from that time, Morigi is a proud creature of that house and family, securely beautiful and defiant, a picture bride indeed. My uncle Toru once said that, given his mother's status and temperament, he could not figure out, and of course never asked directly, how his father ever persuaded her to marry him. Toru's sense of it, though, was that she was attracted to Bunichi Nakadate's initiative in coming to the U.S., his willingness to take a risk, and that she always had a mind of her own, and that her older sister, Naoji, may already have established herself as the female decision-maker in the family. The Ashizawa-Nakadate marriage was apparently arranged and then formalized during a 1912 trip to Japan by my grandfather, so Grandma Nakadate was not a picture bride in the usual sense, even though her coming to America was also made possible by the gentleman's agreement. Unlike many of his manual laborer contemporaries, Bunichi Nakadate had the means to take care of this business in person, so he did not have to bet his future strictly on the judgment of relatives. Never let somebody sell you a bill of goods was the generic wisdom my father later passed on to me. It is also worth considering that, having heard of picture-husband deceptions by means of decade-old photographs, my future grandmother, too, wanted to see what she was in for. 
Moriji Nakadate accompanied her new husband to Seattle on the Inaba Maru in June 1912, when she was 20 and he was 34. By training, she was a teacher, having attended normal school, and as an educated woman, she embodied the charge of the 1872 Imperial Rescript, which linked education with the moral code of an emerging nation. She arrived in America having already taught in Japan, and she soon started what may have been the first Japanese language school in Portland. She would recall for her sons the day when she, among a group of school children filing through the street, encountered a military procession led by General Nogi Marasuke, a celebrated hero of the Russo Japanese War. The general stopped his column and bowed, she said, and waited for the children to pass. Deferring to those in pursuit of learning. So, Moriji Nakadate's uncompromising ambitions for her sons included higher education. She never became a naturalized citizen, she never converted to Christianity, and she did not live to see my father graduate from medical school or Toru receive his business degree. She never saw a Sansei grandchild go off to college, but her influence transcended a hard life. That ended in kidney failure when she was 47. Her American grandchildren all earned graduate degrees and all ended up teaching. When I announced that I had completed my doctorate and was about to start an academic career, my father, who had expected me to follow him into medicine and was deeply disappointed when I gave up on lab courses to write papers on Shakespeare and Faulkner, glanced up and said, almost as if he had been waiting for the chance, Grandma Nakadate was a teacher, you know. Hatsune Maramoto, Moriji Nakadate, my grandmothers. Like their husbands, they were unlikely ever to have met in Japan, but at one point lived a few blocks from each other in America. From strikingly different backgrounds and with much different prospects and expectations, they left a country in which a woman's primary role was to help extend her husband's lineage. For a country where women could not yet vote, and Japanese immigrants were aliens ineligible to citizenship. They came to the United States to help complete the marginalized lives of Japanese men and gave birth to American children. West Side, East Side. Having abandoned railroad labor, Minajiro Maramoto had tried various types of ad hoc employment, farming included, and had barely gotten by. Even if he had found success in farming, he would have encountered the increasing hostility of white farmers and others who did not like seeing Orientals on the land as lessees, let alone owners. So he and his picture bride turned away from rural itinerancy for the relative stability of urban life. And from their arrival in Portland until 1942, the Maramotos were a fairly typical West Side family. Working hard in the face of the prevailing prejudices and making do at the vulnerable edge of American life. Any improvement in living quarters was accomplished one neighborhood move, one apartment at a time. A brief residency on East Cooch was merely an interlude in what was fundamentally a West Side Nihonmachi story. The Maramotos lived a tenacious, hopeful, and unexceptional existence. Among others who shared their history and their language, their needs and limitations. They ventured into other neighborhoods because of work, or shopping, or recreation, and to see how the rest of the city lived. 
Economic progress meant incremental gains. A new tool or household item here. A new coat or pair of shoes there. A savings account. And, of course, children. Fumi, my aunt, was born in Portland in December 1913, in the Quimby Hotel at Northwest 3rd and Burnside, and, to the end of her days, could recite a litany of impermanence, a succession of little boxes within boxes, the one- and two-room domestic spaces of resident alien life. The Quimby, where all three Matamoto children were born, then the Greystone on North Albina, the Takoku on Northwest 3rd between Cooch and Davis, the Overland at 2nd and Cooch, where their rented space expanded to two rooms because their mother made beds while their father cleaned rooms at the university club, and eventually the Oregonian Hotel in 1928. Yoshiro, my Uncle George, was born in March 1918. There was passing mention of a stillborn brother a year or so earlier, and would grow up exploring the streets and testing the limits of Nihonmachi. Meriko, my mother, was the middle child. The official record for the city says that a midwife named Karia Riki attended at her birth on October 16, 1915, that her parents were from Japan, that her father was a farmer, and that her race or color was brown. As with many other immigrants who might once have entertained thoughts of returning to their homeland, once Minajiro and Hatsune Maramoto had children, the meaning of their lives became clearer and the living of them more demanding. Over a decade would pass before they would be able to move up a step by investing their small savings and a lot of two-job sweat in the chance to operate the Oregonian Hotel at Northwest 3rd in Cooch, and there would be the Great Depression, but while they were still in the same neighborhood of cramped domestic spaces, they were finally able to expand beyond a single room by washing linens, cleaning bathrooms, and troubleshooting plumbing. Their friends helped them make a claim to their lives and labor by referring to the Oregonian as the Maramoto Hotel. Yet, whatever their ambiguous status as aliens not eligible to American citizenship, but also unlikely ever to return to Japan, they saw far different prospects for their American-born children. As was true for Japanese families up and down the West Coast, the arrival of the second generation, the Nisei, American citizens by birth, permanently changed the focus of their story. The Nakadate family, in contrast to the Maramotos, clearly benefited from the aggressive, hard-nosed, and, by some accounts, ruthless entrepreneurial ambition of our unofficial godfather, Masajiro Furuya. That, and my grandfather's ability to learn very quickly under Furuya's mentorship, that business is business. My father's family also benefited from the relative laxity of restrictions on where in the city the newly arrived were allowed to live, despite de facto pressures to stay clustered, if not segregated, in Nihonmachi Chinatown. This attitude toward the presence of Orientals was to shift. In 1913, California led the way by passing an alien land law that kept aliens ineligible to citizenship from owning land and even limited their leases to three years. In Portland at that time, residential restrictions had more to do with individual attitudes and habits of mind than with formal codes, making it unlike many other West Coast cities and cities elsewhere in the country. Against the usual odds, a few persuasive civic leaders resisted the more aggressive forces of segregation and exclusion, if only because compromising the city's workforce was counterproductive to economic growth. In 
So the Portland Japanese congregated in Japantown for economic, social, and cultural reasons more than pure political necessity. While some Issei farmers encountered resistance and hostility in rural Oregon communities, others found it possible to establish themselves in northeast Portland. Similarly, merchants, clerks, and restaurant owners could envision a life beyond Ankeny, Burnside, Cooch, and Davis, could make more than occasional visits beyond Gleason and Hoyt. There was expansion to the east side of the Willamette River. There were other apartments, houses, and schools. Bunichi and Morigi Nakadate, he and eldest son Shia Proud Ashizawa, believed in their capacity and their right to live where their ambitions and resources could take them. And so, although my father was born when his family was listed at 415 Northwest Davis, and his first playground was the North Park Blocks, he was to spend only a short time there. His arrival, on February 3, 1914, the same year that M. Furia Company, 5153 4th Street North, appeared for the first time in the Portland City Directory, was reported to the family in Japan and duly recorded in the registry in Toyotomi Mura. He was, technically, a citizen of both countries, with the right to go home to Japan in the future. He, too, was delivered by a midwife, but unlike my brown mother, he was listed in the American registry as yellow. In 1919, when my father was five and his brother Toru, too, their father, having been promoted from salesman to clerk, moved the family across the Burnside Bridge. They were not alone in doing this, joining their friends the Azumanos, the Nogumas, and others, and their housing there was both modestly better and a symbolic step away from the putative limits of Nihonmachi. They moved first to a rented house on Union Avenue, then to a house at Northeast Union in Cooch that was either owned or leased by Furuya, and finally to 1033 Northeast Hancock, where my father would grow up. Many decades later, I asked my mother's lifelong friend, Kiyo Nakayama, if she had been acquainted with my father and his family when she was young. Fetching a distant memory with a twinkle and a laugh, she said, Oh, yes, but we thought they were high-toned people. Thought he was kind of stuck up. You know, east side boy. Some might refer to these modest shifts in housing and this movement across the city as early evidence of upward mobility, a movement toward the middle class. I see them as a claim and a statement on having an American life. <laughs>